This morning's sermon will be based on 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, which can be found on page 1857 of the Pew Bible. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves a brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Thanks, Libby. Hey, everybody. Man, it's sad with all the college students here, isn't it? We're doing a series called Secure Standing, and it's out of the book of 1 John in the Bible. It'll feel a little topical because um, John goes through things cyclically rather than argues one thing all the way through like the book of Romans or something like that. But there is one place where he explicitly says exactly the purpose of this four-page book. And it's this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so people who say that they're Christians, people who are professing Christians, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is, his purpose is to write to people to help them authenticate that they're really Christians, that they really do believe in Jesus, they really have experienced God's redemption, and that the result of that, receiving eternal life, they've really received that. I talked last week about the fact that one of the reasons why this is really critical for us is because what, what John argues later in the book is one of the reasons why assurance, knowing that we're really Christians, if we claim to be Christians, is incredibly important for us, is specifically because it is, it is the security that drives out all insecurity. And this is relevant in a context in which 
though we're doing better as the human race in things like food security, we are doing much worse in things like relationship security. And there is a ton of just personal insecurity racking people. In fact, that's what I mainly counsel people about all day, is people just struggling with dealing with themselves and the world around them and really trusting that they can do what's right and good and overcome their internal terror. Um, John said it this way, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him, that is like Jesus. Therefore, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, to a person that likes to insert whatever meaning they culturally want to into the word love, that paragraph doesn't really make a lot of sense. But if you understand that the greatest human insecurity is the bonding of two, of two fears, that is, the loss of life and moral damnation to be unjustified, and that these happen together, that is, we die, and then there is judgment, and we lose our life, and we lose our being, and those two things are locked together, and there is a internal, inescapable, and on some level undeniable fear that this is reality. And it is that insecurity that cannot be healed apart from the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that both forgives us and releases us from, our, from punishment on the day of judgment and assures us of eternal life that deals with everything that is in play in that root fear. A few years ago, there was a book by a guy named Charles Dunig called um, The Power of Habit, and in it he argued there were such things as golden habits that if you did those habits, you'd sort of like get some other habits kind of for free because they kind of just naturally happened, right? He said, so like if you, if you exercised first thing in the morning, a whole bunch of other good things tended to happen because of how you set up your day. I think the same—now, this has nothing to do with the book. I think something similar, though, is true of fears. You start backing down on fears, and fears are built on fears, and insecurities are built on insecurities. And what John is saying is, is that if you want to experience— what he calls here perfect love, which is complete, whole love, then what has to happen is your fears have to be dealt with. And there is a, a very basic root set of fears that when Jesus deals with those, love enters in, fear is pushed out, and the more Jesus enters in, and the more he takes control of, and the more he fills, the more those those other lesser fears are pushed out. Because when death can't kill you, and when no one can condemn you, what is actually really left to fear? Right? So, so we're doing this for those two reasons. We want—John wants you, God the Holy Spirit wants you to have the benefit, assurance, and strength of assurance, and I believe we live in a moment where there is a 
profound brokenness of personal insecurity. People are having a really hard time trying to figure out what roots them. And so I think that this is disproportionately important for this moment of time. When I was 18 and I went to college for the first time, um, I didn't have to go to college twice. I just, it was the first time I'd gone. Um, I started reading my Bible every day, and I started reading the book of Proverbs through, through the month. I'd read a chapter every day throughout the month as well as some other things. And one of the things that came up over and over again was this concept of humility, how important humility was, that you, you really couldn't be full of faith or faithful without a growing sense of humility. And here are some of the passages. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Or Proverbs eighteen twelve. Before his downfall, man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. So there's this really clear teaching in the Bible that pride causes you to be foolish, to do what's morally pragmatic rather than what's really what's right, true, and beautiful. And it produces idiotic things in the long run rather than good things. It, it, it doesn't produce blessing. And yet, um, in 1 John, there's a significant emphasis on self-deception, right? It's all through the passage. You, you probably heard it in the passage that Libby read, right? Um, somebody says this but does that, they're a liar. There's, there's self-deception everywhere in the first couple chapters of First John that people experience this. And so I was reading a little bit on self-deception this week, and there's, there's a study from 1992 um, on um, how people perform in certain tasks based on three security categories. Over-security, that is ridiculous, not connected with reality, pride— People who are pretty well connected with reality, they're confident and humble, and people that are like spinning around in their own personal insecurities. And you, you might think that like when they interact with certain tasks in the world, that middle group would do the best. And what they found in the study was that there was a whole swath of things that the first group outperformed the other two significantly. That the people that were like sort of lost in their own self-deceptional arrogance just could do stuff these other two groups couldn't do, including the people you would normally say are the psychologically healthy ones, which is a little puzzling. But it's also, it's also kind of true. It, make, it makes sense intuitively because there's this whole swath of things in human life that if you have a proper understanding of yourself, you don't know if you'll succeed or fail. And so when you think about them, you're thinking about the fact that, well, maybe I can do it, and it's very likely that I can't, and if I can't, and so you cost-benefit them. And so there's lots of stuff you don't try because when you do the cost-benefit, it's really not—doesn't seem smart to go for it. Whereas the guy that simply doesn't know the girl is way out of his league just goes and asks her out. And he doesn't know that she has—nobody knew she has huge daddy issues and is actually going to say yes to his particular kind of stupidity. But because he just went and—like—or the, or the woman that, like— you can't—she doesn't know for sure if she was humble whether or not her boss would pay more to have her on his staff, but she just asked for a raise because, of course, she's worth three times what she's being paid. And so she just asks for a raise, and she finds out that her boss actually was willing to give her a raise. And you can actually come up with a number of examples of this. Things that actually confident, normal people wouldn't do— People awash in self-deceived pride do and succeed, which is spiritually frustrating, right? Because you want to believe that, like, actually, if you had confidence and humility, that should be the best category, right? And so I think 
The issue here, though, is that category was people that believed they could do more than could be rightly expected, humanly speaking. They didn't think they were going to succeed because God was with them. They just thought they could do it. They could climb the mountain. They can ask out the girl. They can get the race. If someone is faithful in the holistic biblical sense, then they both can have confidence and humility in the normal sense, with all the benefits of humility, and they can believe in the confidence-increasing mechanism of the will of God. That there are things that God actually goes before you. God actually wants to accomplish. God is personally involved in, that he's involved in and around you if you're a believer. And you can have confidence in things that the basic cost-benefit would say no about. But that you can actually believe you can do, you should do, and therefore you will do, even though you think it's pretty likely you're going to fail, but you don't actually care. So you're not actually in the same state of mind as the person that's self-deceived. That person actually thinks they can't fail. But there is a spiritual place of Christian faith where you actually believe in God. Where even though you carry with you the knowledge that you could totally fail— The thing itself is worth it, and you go. You do. You act. I mean, I'll tell you right now, when I was in my early 20s, I I really did not want to have children. I just didn't like the way the world was. I didn't like the influencing arrays. I didn't like the idea that they were going to cost money. I didn't—I just didn't like—I didn't— feel like it was a high percentage action to have non-idiot adults produced from children that would be my offspring in particular, right? But, But I believed convictionally that the normative action, if you don't have some kind of gift of singleness, was to seek a suitable spouse, and that marriage was lifelong and covenantal, and it should normatively be fertile. And that part of the creation mandate would be that I would pass on life and seek to provide for the world someone who would live for the life of the world and seek to provide before God a worshiper, what Malachi calls godly offspring. And so my wife and I had children, and the jury is still completely out (laughs) on the sort of adults they will be. But I, I I didn't believe I could do it. I just believed that I, that I should. And there have been lots of things in my life that, apart from believing that God would, God would follow his own word, that God would respond to obedience to his own commands, that if I would choose the non-direct way to what I thought was happiness— and follow the way that he had prescribed for me, there would be something richer, something more blessed, something more formidable, something more meaningful in the circuitous route that Jesus was leading me on, rather than the eyesight line to pragmatic happiness that I would manage for myself. And that takes a level of confidence beyond that of a debutante, in my humble opinion. And yet, it is the possession of the Christian who not only believes in Jesus, but who experiences the certainty of assurance that Jesus wants you to have. 
Jesus actually does not want you to believe in him in such a way where you are kind of in this modern, secularistic sense, unsure about everything. You know how that's kind of the hip thing now? You can't really be sure about anything except for what other people want to cram down your throat, right? And so that's not—Jesus does not think that is a cool way to be a Christian, apparently. John explicitly tells us that part of the purpose of God becoming human— Dying for our sins and rising from the dead in in a real space-time continuum is so that we would know with a level of certainty because it isn't enough for us to be saved to act in faith with real, real confidence day in and day out. We have to also know it. It's not enough to just be saved to be bold as a lion. We have to know it. And that's why this book is so important. This is why we need to not just hear me preach through it, but we need to take it in ourselves and digest its message. So the assurance both authenticates God's salvation and it grounds our security. So we're going to go over two parts of that really fast. The first is the distinction. The assurance authenticates God's salvation. It does not confer it. That's a very important fact. Assurance authenticates God's salvation of you. If you believe in Jesus, it does not confer it. Right? So if you look at the passages that talk about assurance, how we can know that we are believers, that we're not—because remember, the problem is self-deception. We can know we're not self-deceived, that we actually do belong to Jesus. All of the passages that talk about this refer to us either being or not being already Christians. At no point in 1 John is the logic ever, if you do these things, then you will be a Christian. If you do these things, God will save you. It's always the reverse. If you are already a Christian, then God's redemption in you will produce these things, and therefore the things that point to assurance point back to the fact that you are really converted. So the, probably the clearest example is 1 John 2, 18 and 19, where he says this, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, and this is how we know it's the last hour. Now pay attention to these next two sentences. They, that is these minor Antichrists, anybody who's a deceiver about Jesus, right? They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Do you see the logic there? What he's saying is, is that they either were or were not all along. The fact that they gave up on Jesus and became deceivers, and they walked out from among us, doesn't show that they were and they lost. What it shows is, is that they weren't they weren't believers. They weren't converted. They weren't—they didn't belong to Jesus. What they thought they were, they were self-deceived about. Does that make sense? And if you read through the book of 1 John and you pay attention to the assumption, this assumption is always there, that when we talk about the criteria for how we can know we're a believer— so in the passage for this morning, it says that we know that we belong to Jesus if we obey his commands— 
we know we belong to Jesus if we love our brother. In that case, this means other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. If these things are happening, we know we are already Christians. Does that make sense? So you could lay out the distinction something like this. Assurance, the criteria for assurance, those seven criteria I gave last week, loving the brother, giving up on walking in sin, obeying Jesus' commands, loving our brothers, not loving the world, persevering and sticking with Jesus, those things, those are like taking an MRI after you've gone through your chemo. Right? If you have cancer, if you have that problem, you can do a thousand MRIs and you're never going to get any better. It is completely useless as a treatment of cancer. What you actually need the cancer treatments for that, whether that's chemo, whether that's surgery, whether that's whatever. But when you hope that you're clear, you actually want to know you're clear. And so having an instrument that scans your whole body and tells you that for the most part, at least in terms of tumors or whatever, you're clear. It is an instrument of assurance. And therefore, the doctrine of assurance and our experience of assurance has nothing to do with how we become a Christian or what makes us a Christian. It's not the treatment. It's just the test. Does that make sense? That's the distinction. What that means is, is that it's an authentication. It's not a state or standing. What that also means is that assurance is a mental state. It's not a state of being. So you, uh, we are either saved or we're not. We either belong to Jesus or we don't. We either are indwelt by the Holy Spirit or we're not. We've either experienced regeneration or we haven't. Assurance is just whether or not we know it. Assurance is not a state of being. It's a psychological state of knowing. And God, it's God's intention that you and I would have both. That we would have the being of receiving Christ being justified and counted just and forgiven of our sins, be sanctified or being transformed, being indwelt by a spirit, experiencing the miracle, all of those things that are part of salvation, and in addition to that, that we would know it. Because knowing it gives our experience and therefore our effect of faith and faithfulness a completely different reality. Okay. The second thing is the dynamic. That assurance grounds our security. God is our security. But knowing that we belong to him grounds our sense of security in the deepest places of our fear of damnation, our fear of moral lostness, and our feel and our fear of the loss of life. Which includes all the other losses, all the other fears of losses related to life, which includes the loss of our youth, the loss of our leisure, the loss of any, any part of consuming our life, which would include making a commitment relationally, having children and everything that's lost in that. All of those things are related to the loss of our life, grounded in Christ's victory over death and his promise of eternal life, and all of our internal meaning and moral fears are related to our justification, our moral justification, and the giving of meaning for our purpose in life, which comes from Christ's redemption and Christ's creation. <clears throat> There's a couple ways to talk about this 
in relationship to what these passages say. John essentially talks about three things in the whole book of 1 John that are basically the talons of insecurity. Things that create increasing amounts of deception and self-deception that make it impossible for us to experience assurance and therefore the grounding power of assurance. Okay, one is what, um, what John just calls deceivers or little antichrists or that, that sort of thing. That is those who seek to persuade others that what's true isn't, whether they know they're doing it or not. Now, I don't know if, I don't know if, I, if, I, if you heard this, but there's a point where um, Libby's reading the text today, and she gets to the point where she goes, and if this person does this, they're a liar, right? Did you feel that moment when he's just like, you're a liar? You're like, ooh, right? Um, that's the way we, we respond usually to pejoratives because we live in a euphemism culture. Okay? We have non-morally terrible words for everything that is morally terrible. Okay? So some time ago, we decided that unborn baby was not going to work for us. And so we chose the bloodless word fetus, right? When was the last time you heard people say fornicate, right? Well, you heard me say it last week probably, but other, I mean, other than that, right? People don't, be, don't talk like that. Right, it's extramarital sex or whatever. People refer to adultery as affairs, right? Affairs. Mm, that sounds nice. Sounds like a vacation, doesn't it? Right? Or when was the last time, like, a 50-year-old guy leaves his wife and gets together with a 25-year-old, and you heard somebody refer to that as lechery? That's a good word. That sounds like you're puking on somebody, doesn't he? Lechery. Yeah, that word was designed to have an onomatopoeic disgustingness to it, okay? It was, it, it was supposed to sound like you were hacking up a moral loogie to spit on them. <laughs> because it's awful. And so, um, we live in this culture where when you call people a liar and you call somebody a deceiver, that's usually just thought of as like a political stunt to like get the upper hand in a soundbite interview on some news channel. But John is actually not scared to call people antichrists. Right? I mean, that's what that verse said that we read a minute ago. He said, yes, there's going to be ultimately an, an antichrist, like somebody who is a anti-Jesus figure that will have global significance. He's like, but listen, let's not get wrapped up in when that's happening. There are plenty of little antichrists right this minute, deceiving and being deceived. And when that happens, even things that are not, they don't, people don't have to literally say what John, like what John was attacking. So in John's day, there was this thing called protonosticism, and people believed that Jesus couldn't have really come physically, right? And they're like, Jesus didn't really come physically. It's like spiritual, right? And John's like, that is crazy. That is wrong. If you are a Christian, you have to accept Jesus came bodily, Right? Athanasius said, what is not assumed is not healed. He became human to redeem humanity. All human, including the flesh and the body. There's nothing dirty about physicality. God created it, and God redeems it. Right? Right? In, in our day, there are sometimes more subtle things like, you can't be sure. That's just as much against what John is saying. It is just as much anti-Christ 
if Christ has come to give certainty to those who would believe in him and know him, and therefore have the strength and the security of knowing that Christ has redeemed them. Anybody who erodes that intentionally, even out of a philosophical interest that they think is clever or that they think is justified, is functioning as an antichrist, that is, as a deceiver. Now, that doesn't mean you should tell everybody, right, and, and call them that. But for your understanding, it's really important. That's why using euphemisms in the church can be really counterproductive. You can be polite, and sometimes you can use euphemisms with other people, because you just don't want to fight about it right then, or make them feel uncomfortable when you know you're just going to make problems. But if we use nothing but euphemisms here, we become self-deceivers of each other, right? Another is prideful self-deception, which is essentially avoidance or dishonesty about the use of authenticating questions. Do you obey Jesus' commands? Do you love other Christians? Are you embarrassed that you're part of the church and don't want to go? Are you generous with brothers and sisters? Are you, do you not love the world? Um, blowing those off or saying, you don't know my heart. Listen, let me just say something, and, and this may not be helpful for some of you, but it might for some of you. Everybody knows your heart, <laughs> okay? The whole thing like, you don't know my heart, that is the most idiotic thing imaginable. Human beings are incredibly expressive and incredibly um, prescient, like they understand what's going on. Perceptive, okay? And Everybody knows your heart. Every breath you take, every movement of your body language, every word that you choose, every use of your time, every choice you make, everything you do is pouring your heart out into the world, your real heart. Maybe not the self-deceived version that you really think is true about you, but your real heart is constantly pouring out and filling the room you're in. The only person who doesn't know your real heart is you, okay? They know your heart. It's you that don't know your heart. And so, one of the talons of insecurity is tying us up in a misunderstanding of who Jesus is, what it means to have an authentic faith in him, an authenticated faith in him, and to actually face the questions that make us feel uncomfortable, but are also objective enough that can overcome our self-deception. Right? Like, you can have an argument with somebody in your life about whether or not you care about them or they care about you. But there is almost always some question that they can ask you that lays the whole thing bare. Right? Which would be very painful and embarrassing, humiliating for us to have it asked of us and for it to have, like, basically be a rhetorical question because it's so obvious what the answer is. So that's what Jesus is doing for you. He's saying, I know you're confused about whether or not you're really a Christian. I know that self-deception fills all of us so much. So let me ask you questions. You may feel humiliated when I ask them to you, but they will objectively clarify where your heart really is at. Do you obey my commands? Or do you just not? Do you love the concrete Jesus believing in human being right next to you? Because it's just fake to say that you love the, the abstract spiritual Jesus that has ascended to heaven if you cannot love his objects of love and redemption that are indwelled with the Spirit of God. 
If you cannot see that in people and radiate on them, and if, if, if it's not even only the great, if you don't love anything else about them, you should be able to see God's image in them as you should see it in every human, but you should also see the workings of grace in them, and that should be attractive. You should want to give love towards that. And if you don't, and you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, let's get, let's get honest, right? You don't love Jesus. And if you love the world, that is not creation, but all of the structures of society and culture and things that, that are Jesus-denying and Jesus-rejecting, if you adore them, and on some level, you don't find them just self-defeating and sort of ridiculous and completely vacuous, like, you're not thinking at all in the terms that Jesus has laid down about what reality is like. And it's a little foolish to say that you believe in the one whom you believe nothing from. And the point is not—Jesus' point is not to bully you. Jesus' point is to have this cathartic moment where you go, Oh, stink. This relationship is not like I thought it was. And I have a choice to make. That's all. And if the answers are positive, that you're growing in those things— you're not perfect, but like there's real evidence of the grace of God, then it's meant to be assuring. Right? There's times I've asked my wife questions like, is this right? And she's been able to be like, well, you've, you've done this and this and this. I've seen this in you. You've done that. I feel like you're doing a good— And that was very helpful for me. It was assuring. And there are other times where it's been humiliating, and I had a, a, a choice of faith to make. Was I going to change my belief that was going to ultimately produce the fruit that I was after? And then the last one is agitated self-deception. And that is not when we're too arrogant to see the truth, but when we're actually too insecure to see the truth. There, the passage for this is um, in, in chapter 3, where John says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. I don't want to get into the rest of that right now, because there's a bunch of things working together in that thing. But what he's saying is this. The passage before is about loving brothers and sisters in Christ, and specifically being generous with them financially and physically when they have real needs, right? And he says that, actually loving in word and in deed, doing it, is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence when our hearts condemn us. So what he's saying is, is that there is a personal experience that people have where their own internal sense of knowing God is self-condemning, right? They're like, this isn't, there's no way God really has saved me. There's no way he really loves me. There's no way this is right. There's no way, right? And sometimes you see that in very insecure people. Like if nobody's ever really loved you, that you could tell— the idea that, like, the morally perfect absolute one does can be a little hard psychologically to, like, grasp, right? But it's also true for people who, like, actually know God. Um, for example, one of the greatest struggles for the first-generation Puritans before, like, it got super legalistic in the following generations was you had these divines or theologians who would study the grandeur of God in the Bible. And the more they studied the grandeur of God and the sinfulness of human beings— the fact of human depravity, self-deception, fake faith, 
just was on every—they saw it on every page. And the absolute self-honesty of God, his complete and prescient knowledge of every human affair, of every thought, of every twisted idea, of every, of every bit of it, kind of brought them to the place where they're like, there is no way that what I offered and I called faith that God in any meaningful sense would have honestly accepted as faith and therefore accepted the condition of salvation and saved me. There's no way. There, and there are actually Puritan minds that struggle with that for decades. Some of them sought their assurance in all the wrong ways. Right? And I would say that if you've ever had that thought, that that's actually not a bad one. It's actually a fairly mature spiritual and theological thought. But if that thought is wrecking you, then you're not, you're not progressing from it in a healthy spiritual way. Because it is true that whatever we offered Jesus as faith, if and when we accepted him, was utterly rejectable. At no point are we human beings so honest with ourselves and so honest with God that we could just be like, look, told, being totally honest with you right now, did some things wrong, ready to accept Jesus. It's, we, we've never given it all up in repentance, and we've never given it all over in faith. And if you go back to your moment of faith, and you really ask yourself the question, in relationship to sin and independence from God, and everything you've ever done that you know is beneath the glory of God, did you give it all over? And when it comes to every event, every moment, every bit of the rest of your life from now until the end of eternity, which doesn't have one, have you given over every bit? And the answer is, for every single one of us, of course not. And if you didn't, is what you did faith? Is it real trust? Right? You see, here's the thing that we have to understand at some point. Even in the moment of faith and receiving God's salvation is an event of grace. God counts what we give as faith as faith. And in it, he gives justification, and he counts us righteous in Christ. Jesus didn't die for—Jesus died for our sin of self-deception when we accepted him. And on, on that level, we begin to realize that every step of faith is repentance and faith. As honest as we know how to be at that moment— as full of faith as we know how to be at that moment. And then we are utterly dependent on the generosity and goodwill and graciousness of God. And it is only—and so therefore, you're never going to experience assurance by going back to something you offered as faith and finding assurance in that. That's not how it works. What happens is, is that if what you offered is faith, what you called faith, when you said, I, I repent of my sins and I accept you, Jesus, whatever that was, 
If God responded to it as faith, he redeemed you. He regenerated you. He filled you with the Spirit. And that plant he creates produces fruit. And when that fruit grows, it is imminently seeable. And that is the basis of our assurance, not what we offered as faith. If I go back to when I was like 16 and 17, 18, 19, 20, no, 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 no. And, and look at any moment where I offered Jesus something as faith, and I go back to that and say, I think that was real faith. It may have been real faith, but that is not how we are invited to find our assurance. It doesn't mean that God is picky about receiving faith. If we're in, God is clearly not picky, right? It is just, that is not the basis on which God invites us to feel assured. He invites us to come to him in faith so that he'll save us. Then he saves us. That, that miracle of salvation produces things. Love of our brethren. Not loving the world. Trusting Jesus in what he commands. Trusting Jesus in what he forbids. Sticking with Jesus in perseverance and overcoming. And all of those things. When you see that fruit, you know the plant is good. You know salvation has happened. And that assurance grounds our life beyond death. It grounds our meaning and morality in our damnation and deserved punishment. And in it, it grounds our security in every other fear. Has the ability to push them out and for the whole immature love of God to come into us and flow out of us to every object of our attention, of our lives, of our resources, of anything that we've got. And so the questions we should ask ourselves is not whether or not our faith was strong enough back then. John is saying basically these are the questions you ask. One is, do I confess Jesus and trust him for my present salvation today? Second, is there evidence of regeneration in the Holy Spirit in me? The things that, the things that John says, if you say that you believe in Jesus and then you do these things, you're a liar. Those tests for truthfulness are questions about whether or not there's evidence of God's grace, evidence of regeneration, and the Holy Spirit. And third is, is there a long-term pattern of growth in me? The point here is not to say, if you sin at all in any way, you're not, your faith is really not a Christian. What John lays out, and I'll talk about more, of this, more about this in two weeks, or, th or three weeks, I think it is. Um, assurance comes from a sense of trajectory because you're not asking, am I equal to Jesus? You're asking, is the grace of God changing me? That's what you're asking. And so therefore, this is a progressive question. Am I different today than I was yesterday, last year? Is something happening? Is it, do my non-Christian neighbors understand me less than they did two years ago? Do my actions and my choices make less sense to them? Do the, my brothers and sisters and faith around me, can they testify that they see something happening in me? Am I persevering in faith today? 
Those are the grounds of assurance. Those are both difficult questions because the answer can be no, but the strength of them is that they are objective questions. And they are objective enough to look at the face of a deceiver and say, no, you're wrong. This is the criteria. They're strong enough to look at the pride of our own self-deception and say, I know that you've talked yourself into this, but these are the questions you can't answer, even though you've set up a little sphere for yourself in which you could answer the questions you asked yourself. And for those of us who are too insecure, either for good reason or bad reasons, to set our hearts at rest in his presence, these are the objective questions by which whatever fear you have about whether or not your faith was real enough, these are the objective questions by which you can set your heart at rest in his presence. It says at the end of chapter 1, That if we If we believe and confess our sins That Jesus is faithful to Cleanse our sins And purify us From all unrighteousness Now it's possible That's just the same thing in parallel That being forgiven of our sins And being purified from unrighteousness Is the same thing Given the context of the book It probably isn't it probably is referring both to the forgiveness of our deserved punishment, the forgiveness of our sins, and the process by which God changes us, where he purifies us from all unrighteousness. Because the same way we came to Jesus in the first place, repentance and faith, so that he could save us, is the exact same way that Jesus is going to change you today. And it's the exact same way Jesus is going to change you for the rest of your life. Repentance and faith. You're going to agree to the truth of what he says and the falsehood of what you've believed instead. You're going to release the guilt of that to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who is the atonement. And you're going to let God change you. Empower you, lead you in a new direction, Remake your, and reinform your conscience, bring people around you who can strengthen you, give you a new vision of the future, help you understand the meaning and purpose of your life, clarify the moral vision that should empower your emotions of what you approve of and disapprove of, such that you will be able to walk like Jesus, even in places where you don't imagine you could ever succeed. Because not only will seeing Jesus as he is enormously humble us, but it will also point us to try and attempt things even though we know we'll probably fail because they're right and they're good and whether or not we succeed doesn't even really matter. That is, it will build in us something the Bible calls righteousness, of which the book of Proverbs says, the wicked flee even when nobody chases them but the righteous are bold as lions. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would give us the conviction that you don't only want us to be redeemed in Jesus, you want us to know it. I pray you'd give us the courage to believe what 1 John says about this. I pray that you would help us to 
be overcome in whatever deception might keep us from it or might stunt our growth, whether it's external, whether it's personal pride or personal insecurity. And I pray that you would make us bold as lions and yet humble so that we can face everything that comes before us, not even just with the courage that comes from proper self-knowledge, but with the greater courage of faith and faithfulness in the midst of a humility that sets our hearts at rest in your presence, that pushes out all fear, and that brings home to us a kind of mature, complete, or perfect love that everyone in our life enjoys and that glorifies you and points people to what you're really like. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.